Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Daniele Rigamonti, who's the medical director at Johns Hopkins Medicine International, professor of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins University, and former CEO at Johns Hopkins Aramco Healthcare. And one nice osmosis walk down memory lane is that Dr. Rigamonti was a mentor both to me and to my co-founder, Ryan, when we were medical students at Johns Hopkins. In fact, we did some of our first neurological procedures under his supervision, and he was a very early supporter of the work we're doing at Osmosis. So this is now nice full circle. So Dr. Rigamonti, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Shiv. It's very nice to be here because, again, it looks back to very nice memory, and I'm delighted to see that the effort started then is very successful. So congratulations to you and Ryan, and I'm really delighted to see what you've done. Thank you so much. Clearly, it's been really helpful having mentors like yourself early on supporting us. So, you know, I know obviously a lot about your background, but for our audience, many of whom are obviously currently in medical school or other health professional schools, can you tell them about what, what got you interested in a career in healthcare and then specifically neurosurgery? As a high school student, I was actually interested in engineering, but the death of a couple of friends changed some of priorities. So I decided to go into medicine and I became interested in neurosurgery, even though initially I was very interested and successful in basic sciences, because I admired tremendously the neurosurgery professor. He was a scientist with uh, a lot of uh, publication in both anatomy and physiology. And he was a surgeon who actually was different, was actually very impressive and inspiring young men. So that was my first approach to neurosurgery. The second thing that happened is uh, during my summer vacation, my fifth year medical school, I had the opportunity of traveling to U.S. with a summer fellowship. And by total serendipity, I landed at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, where at the time, there was a gentleman called Leonard Malis, who was the premier surgeon in the U.S. in the world. So I get there. I'm a little, a little bit familiar with neurosurgery because I saw something in Italy. And I see this gentleman doing incredible things, beautiful surgery. And it just, I felt like falling in love with this specialty. So when I went back to Italy, I finished the medical school. And then three years later, I was able actually to come back. And since Leonard Malis was impressed with my work ethics, he actually offered me the job as a resident. So that is how it started. Again, more, a lot of inspiration of human being and serendipity. And I just took the opportunity. So. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it's the Louis Pasteur chance favors the prepared mind, as he, he said famously. And also, that, that's a big point I want to make sure our audience knows is that so much of our career decisions can be shaped by mentors like, like the, you know, and, and luck, as you were saying, lining up Mount Sinai and meeting him and then winding up being his resident. And similarly for us, right, the work we're doing at Osmosis shaped a lot by mentors like yourself, as I mentioned at the beginning in the intro. So, you're transitioning from how you got into neurosurgery into your leadership roles of entire hospitals like you did at Aramco. You know, I'm obviously familiar with the venture between Johns Hopkins and Saudi Aramco, which is, as most people know, one of the largest organizations, if not the largest company in the world in energy. 
And it provides free healthcare to Aramco employees and their dependents, as well as to the retirees from the industry. Can you tell us a bit about how the venture began and then what led to you going to Saudi Arabia and then leading in the hospital for so many years? I was, uh, at the time, the Salisbury Family Professor of Neurosurgery at Hopkins. I was very satisfied and pleased with what I was doing. I started and expanded several programs, the neurovascular program, the radiosurgery program, and the hydrocephalus and CSF diseases program. And one day I got a phone call from the president, uh, Hopkins, and said, you know, Dan, we are looking for someone with experience and we need a bit of gravitas to lead this a joint venture with uh, Saudi Aramco. And they explained to me that Saudi Aramco was indeed the biggest energy company in the world. And they had this huge uh, accountable care organization where they were to provide a total care, starting from primary care to secondary care, pediatric and adult and elderly care. And they wanted to have someone senior to be the chief medical officer. So I discussed with my wife, and we were all a little bit scared, honestly, because it was a different culture, a different language, and all of that. But we decided uh, we would try. So we went there. It was a little bit difficult for my wife at the first year because she was trying to do work as a coach, but at the beginning it was quite difficult. But in any case, within a year, I had already accumulated goodwill with the people in Aramco. So they asked me to be the acting CEO. And again, it was scary because it was a felt an overwhelming responsibility, but I decided to accept it also because I felt like they would help me. And basically, within a few months, they offered me the permanent position. And here I was, I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose because moving from neurosurgery to becoming a CEO of a huge organization was a tremendous jump. But I also loved the responsibility because I realized that it was not dissimilar the philosophy that I had in the operating room with the philosophy that I had as CEO. I wanted to be first and foremost safe in providing the care because safety is the number one element of quality. And I wanted to make sure that everybody in the organization understood that and produce a safe environment in primary care, in an emergency room, in a preventive clinic, and again, taking care of elderly. It turned out to be an extraordinary experience. We were able to increase all the KPI because, oh, incidentally, I was dealing with engineers, as you can imagine, geophysicists and oil engineers, very, very structured human being. And at the beginning, I was a little bit overwhelmed by the fact that they were measuring everything. All key performance indicators, everything. But after a while, I actually begin to like the fact that they were actually relying on data. And as long as the data that they produced was actually strong and good, they were very pleased. So that kind of a, a attitude actually permeated in me later. And I found that, that actually it is very important because uh, when you are in the oil business, you do not want to have accidents. You know, an explosion or something like that, they can destroy life in a second. So they were over, over cautious. And that attitude actually was nice to be seen in the organization, in the healthcare organization. So I felt like it was a transition that was challenging in the beginning, but extremely enriching after a while. And again, I feel like what I learned from them is tremendous. 
and it's something that I wish many people could actually access to. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because we're going to talk about your current work in, in patient safety, but you know, a lot of patient safety and a lot of healthcare organizations have been looking at the aviation industry for decades as mm-hmm. to how to perform better, how to be safer. But it's interesting that you mentioned some of the learnings from an, a large oil and gas provider and the parallels there between you know, being data-driven and trying to prevent explosions or, or other negative outcomes. You know, we got reconnected because of your work in patient safety. Do you mind talking? I mean, you've already alluded a bit to kind yeah. of where your interest came from, but can you tell us what you're up to nowadays with regards to patient safety and the work you're doing there? So basically, one thing that I actually realized when I was at Zaha is that we had implemented all the procedure, all the policy that we were present at Hopkins. So we were actually pretty solid in performing everything that was aiming at increasing the safety. In spite of that, few bad outcomes occur, some adverse events. And that triggered my curiosity. I said, why is it that in spite of having done all the training and checked the boxes, we still have the problem? So that became, initially, I would call it like an academic interest. But you know, it's more than academic, because all my life, Whenever I dealt with something that I didn't understand, I said, okay, let's see if we find a solution or an answer for this. So digging into the problem, I realized that uh, there is a gap between what people know and what people actually do. And basically, you can teach a lot of things to everybody, but unless the people actually practice what they learn, they, they make that experience a habit, there are situations in which bad things happen because under stress, weaknesses occur and they get exposed and basically bad things happen. So basically, I'm interested now in finding, if we can, a solution or a better trap to eliminate the systemic gaps that actually prevent people from being totally safe. I mean, luckily, we are safer than we were years ago, but the journey to safety never ends. You know, there is... Perfection is actually something that you, you, you aim at, but you doubt you'll ever achieve. But again, but that is the, the will that is actually pushing me to investigate and, and coming up with a solution for this. So well, what's your approach? I mean, are you focused on things in the OR that lead to patient safety or, or elsewhere? I mean, obviously running a large healthcare system, it was all across uh, the board. But By experience, there are three areas where the bad things seem to be, I guess, consolidating, one in the operating room, one in the ICU, and in the emergency room. And it has to do with the fact that those are the places where the sickest patients tend to congregate. So working in these three areas is basically most efficient. You, you, know, you, you can have an area somewhere else in the organization that may need help, but the, the area where there are very high safety problems are those three. And what I believe is necessary in those areas is actually to get the people involved, nurses, physicians, and technicians, and actually creating situation, maybe sometimes using events that have occurred already, like a sentinel event. You go over what happened, say, okay, this is what happened. What is that we should have done and we didn't do? Or you know, let's imagine a situation that is not really occurred yet. What would you do? 
And the reason I'm doing this, and I believe that actually it's going to work, is something, again, that I learned from Saudi Aramco. In 2019, as a part of the engineering philosophy, we were doing drills every three or four months, a drill. So in November 2019, we did a drill called Emerging Infectious Diseases. That's by chance. So we look at where we're ready to deal with an emerging infectious disease. You say, well, no, we are not. We don't have enough negative pressure room. We should have more respirator. So we fixed it. Guess what? Three months later, when the pandemic struck, we were, I guarantee you, the most prepared organization on the planet. And I, feel, and I feel like, you know, this is actually an experience that we'll always remember. If you drill, you are more likely to be ready than if you don't. And in a situation with safety, if you're doing something in the operating room and you explore a situation that could be deteriorating, you know what to do because you are now familiar. You're looking for something. You can detect something going wrong earlier before it becomes irreversible. So that is something that I learned and again by total chance because I was there and I feel like there is a, a big lesson to be learned. That's remarkable. I was actually going to ask you about the COVID experience, uh, both at Hopkins in Baltimore, where you are now, as well as at Hopkins in, in Saudi Arabia. So that's a good time to transition. So yeah. clearly, you yeah. know, by, by chance, but again, chance favors a prepared mind, you guys prepped at Aramco for an emerging infectious disease and hopefully had enough mechanical ventilators and, and things like that. But can you tell us about some of the changes that you know. saw? because of COVID? And then what, what do you think some of the lasting changes because of COVID uh, will be to the healthcare system? One other lesson that I actually learned very early on, again, because of the Saudi Aramco philosophy of engineering safety, is something that has to do with recognizing and deferring to expertise. In other words, if you are in an oil rig and something happened, you want to get the guy who knows how to close the oil rig to fix the problem, not an engineer who works in the research department, okay? Well, when the pandemic struck, the first thing that they did, and I was very happy, was to create an incident commander, someone that everybody knew was the expert and everybody would defer to because they wouldn't claim to know better. And this was the chief infectious disease and infection control guy. So he was nominated by me as the incident commander. He participated from that point on to every meeting of the C-suite. We would discuss how to do things, how to deal with problems. And we would ask always, does this make sense to you? And we had this uniform guidance, which was actually very important to me to move in an organization forward. One of the things that I've noticed in the US, there are contradicting recommendation, and that is like, you know, you do not know, who do I follow? Is this right? The other one is fine. And I feel like one of the tremendous benefits also to give you a sort of peace that you're actually doing the right thing is to know that the right guy is actually leading the ship. I was the CEO, but I would defer to him whenever there was a decision to be made. So that is something that uh, we learned from the COVID. The other thing that we did immediately was to change a lot of the way we're providing care and telemedicine is one of the things that everybody does that. But we were ready and basically we were able to provide non-acute care 
to the majority of the employee and their dependent early on and still maintain a certain degree of elective surgery and medical care so that we didn't really affect tremendously the operation. But it was certainly an experience that is going to change the way medicine is going to be moving from now on. I think that uh, something that was not imaginable two years ago, that uh, you could be seeing your physician on the Zoom and be comfortable that he would be asking you the right things because uh, it was a follow-up, regular follow-up, becomes routine now. And it's probably going to save money and be more efficient and all of that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've covered a lot about how telemedicine is is here to stay. And, you know, it's gone down a bit since people have been going to clinics more often now, but it's still at a much higher, an order of magnitude higher than it used to be pre-pandemic. I think a lot about, you know, the times I shadowed you both in the neurosurgery clinic as well as in the in the OR. And I'm I'm curious, first of all, are you or or, are you still practicing? And and regardless of that, there are so few things, it seems like, in neurosurgery that you could do through telemedicine. I mean, obviously, the, operationally, but then also, even in the clinic, uh, you're constantly trying to, you're doing the neurological exams, and you're, you know, it's best to do it in person. You know, what are your thoughts on the future of neurosurgery and telemedicine? I think that you would probably do regular follow-up that uh, when the patient feels comfortable, and determining during the video visit if there is a need to be actually evaluated in person. I believe that there is always going to be a major role for the in-person contact, also because the people sometimes, have, besides the neurological problem, they have fears, they are concerned that you know you need to address. And in spite of the artificial intelligence giant step forward, there is, I believe, always need for a human being to just with compassion, just listen and understand what the hell is going on in someone else's mind. I think that neurosurgery was always very highly technical, and I believe that uh, in neurosurgery, the major advances that we believe could obtain due to the after the COVID is the fact that maybe with the awareness of how important is the asepsis, uh, maybe the percentage of infection will drop significantly in the next few years because people realize now that you know washing their hands is actually very important. And even though technically everybody is supposed to do it, there is maybe a better way of doing it, a more thorough way to do it. Moving in the operating room is, in my opinion, always a source of possible infection. So diminishing greatly the number of people that actually go in and out and the operating room is important so that being prepared, having everything you need before you start is very important. So there are little things that are not going to change dramatically, but added, they are gonna, each one will add a little bit more safety and therefore improve the outcome just a little bit. But this is a cumulative effect. So I believe that there's still a lot of to be benefited from. Yeah, it's what they say is a game of inches, right? Like there may... Eventually, there'll be Hail Mary type passes, things like the checklist that Matula Gawande has written about that can really be a step function in terms of improving outcomes. But otherwise, it's a game of inches and, you know, trying to trying to do uh, incremental change that'll come out. Yeah. yeah. As you know, Osmosis is a teaching company and we educate, you know, millions of current and future healthcare professionals. If you could snap your fingers and have us develop teaching modules in any on any subject, where would you have us focus right now? 
where are the gaps in knowledge or training that you think you would like to see addressed? I believe that nowadays it's been addressed more than it used to be when I was a student. I think that the stress on a collective approach to resolving medical problems is actually a new thing that has been shared in the new medical school, in the current medical school. I think that an attitude of humility so that you, you don't necessarily know everything that you need to know, but there are three of you discussing a case, there is a better chance that you're actually going to come up with the right decision, the right diagnosis, the right protocol. So I think that the the collective learning is a very strong positive advancement. And I recommend to everybody, to the older students, to, to actually take advantage of that. It's easier to study with other people. It's easier to learn with other people. And you're going to become a better doctor if you work as a physician, a nurse, or a technician with other people as a team. Yeah, team-based care for sure is something we're seeing. And, you know, I think a lot of medical schools especially have been transitioning from these, you know, stage on a stage, one hour lecture formats into more problem-based learning, team-based learning, which has been good. And hopefully there'll be more interprofessional collaboration because I remember for my first two years at Hopkins Med, I had only one interaction with someone from another profession. It was a pharmacy rotation I did, but I think hopefully there'll be more and more of that because that is the future of care. Yeah. Speaking of students, like, you know, given again, our audience of early and young career health professionals, what advice would you give them about pursuing careers in healthcare, especially given that we're over a year into this pandemic? I think medicine is a beautiful profession. There are many good professions, but taking care of an individual in need and being able to help gives you a satisfaction that cannot be compared to anything else, I don't think. It used to be said that if you save one man, you save humanity. And I think there is something true in it. I think that it is important to understand that to do that, you need to offer respect and trust to your colleague. You need to listen to their voices. And this is true for the patient as well. And as a human being, you need to actually Understanding you need to inspire your team. You need to do something that requires some time effort that is so important because if you're a good leader, your team is going to do great things. And I cannot underemphasize this because I feel like at the end of the day, you need to produce something and, and produce quality, safety, good results is a, an incredible achievement, which I wish to all of you to achieve one day well that's some great advice and some great words and you know my my mom still wants me to go back and finish med school and obviously <laughs> i may see you in baltimore uh, not in the not too distant future as a result <laughs> so i know we're coming up in time you know what have i not asked you that you'd like to be able to get across to our audience today well i think we touched the majority of the important topics i think that again you're doing a great things by going to medical school and you have a great profession ahead of you. There are difficulties, but difficulties are also opportunity to do something better than what used to be done in the past. COVID is a very stressful experience, but hopefully we will be stronger after that. So I believe that what you're doing is great, and I wish you the tremendous success. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Gamonte. It's it's truly a pleasure again to reconnect after all these years. And you were an inspiration then. You continue to be an inspiration now for all the work that you're doing and the tireless dedication that you put towards it. So with that, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on today's show. Thank you very much, Shiv. Good luck to all of you. <laughs> <laughs> with that, I'm Shiv Rilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>